I'm Julia McFarlane, and you're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that have shaped the world. This week, we have a special episode for you. Foreign correspondent Laura Haim is back as a guest co-host for One Decision. She joined us recently to talk about the French elections. While Laura's currently on assignment covering the war in Ukraine and its impact on Europe, she's also been following the curious story of a small coastal village in the south of France, Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat, a town that's attracted a stream of Russians for years. And not just your average wealthy Russians, but some of the world's most notorious oligarchs. However, with the war in Ukraine, the town is now in a state of flux. With sanctions in place, many Russians have had their assets frozen, making it hard to maintain their estates. Meanwhile, across Europe, Ukrainians are moving in. At least 12 million refugees have left Ukraine since the war began in February, moving to different countries in Europe. Nearly 100,000 have ended up in France. The small town of Saint-Jean-Cap-Forat hasn't escaped impact. It's French citizens witnessing changes in the local economy as a result of the war. And as for those Russian oligarchs, where they are headed now has been the subject of growing speculation and reporting. In today's roundtable, our guests discuss just that. So, without further ado, here's Laura Haim. Thank you, Julia. Bonjour everyone, hello everyone, and thank you for having me on the podcast. So now to help us learn more about Russian oligarchs, where they're moving to, what countries are letting them in and why, we've brought an expert, Louis Shelley, the director of the Transitional Crime and Corruption Center at George Mason University. She has been an expert witness about how Russian money is laundered through real estate. And of course, one decision's very own Sir Richard Darlove, former head of Brighton's MI6, who has, as we know well, a wealth of experience and knowledge about this. So welcome, Louise, and welcome, Sir Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Richard, with your experience, I am really curious to know if you knew about this stone, Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat. I had certainly heard about it, yes. And I am well aware that there's a sort of aggregation of very wealthy, uh, questionable Russians who located themselves in this area. Did uh, your service when you were the head of the intelligence community in Great Britain, uh, did you have, for instance, some agents there to track the oligarchs arriving there? That's the sort of question that I probably won't want to answer. But what I'll say to you is that my knowledge of the French security service uh, is that they are extremely efficient. Uh, They're one of the most (laughs) performant uh, in the whole of Europe. Louise, uh, did you hear also about this turn? What's uh, your feeling about the fact that all those oligarchs uh, arrived in the past 10 or 20 years in the south of France? It's more than 20 years, and they arrived in the south of Spain, and it's been a very present part of the um, rich Mediterranean community. But the French did not investigate the, the Russian presence as much as the Spaniards did. And the Spaniards... The Spanish did an investigation on that. And the, the Spanish did multiple investigations over multiple... What did they find? They found massive numbers of oligarchs, oligarchs that were connected to organized crime, and they, they rounded up 
large numbers of criminals and they kept this under watch. In contrast, how do you explain that, Louise? How do you explain that? Because the Spaniards were so concerned about the basically the invasion of so much Russian money and so much dirty Russian money into Spain that they started investigating this in the gosh, maybe 1995. And online, you can find leaked documents from the Spanish investigation because the Russian oligarchs were involved in trying to compromise these investigations so these materials couldn't be used against them. So, Richard, how do you explain that those governments like the Spanish government or the French government letting them in? Well, I think you have to look at the bigger context, which was, you know, Cold War ended, uh, things changed massively in Russia. In some aspects, it's opened up to the West. Uh, its trade became important in a way that it was isolated during the Cold War. And I think to begin with, there was a laissez-faire attitude, um, unless... A laissez-faire attitude, which is a kind of a very French expression, <laughs> if, if I say. A laissez-faire attitude means, uh, for the uh, listeners of this podcast, it means, uh, oh, we let everything happen there. So there was this kind of laissez-faire attitude. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, I think the point that Louise made about the difference between the Spanish approach, uh, I mean, Spain, if, if, you, if you look at, Spain was, for example, a venue for a lot of British criminals who were trying to es escape justice. So Spain has a tradition of going after, let's say, undesirable individuals who set up house in Marbella or wherever it is, and um, you know spend their ill-gotten gains on the Costa Brava. I mean, I think the French attitude towards Russia was rather different, and they were only concerned about the Russian community initially if there was a specific security question which related to you know internal security of France or there was some aspect of suspicious activity which reflected the activity of the Russian state rather than Russian individuals but you know that so in the early days things were very very different but you know we've moved on such a long distance now I think we understand far more the problems that we're up against and the infiltration of criminality. Uh, Sir Richards, uh, you were talking a few minutes ago about the EU, the United Emirates. And I would like to ask you this question. Uh, the New York Times uh, tracked recently the fight records of some oligarchs uh, through different sources. I know that some of them have been to Dubai, sometimes to Qatar, of course, to the United Emirates. Uh, how do you explain that they're going there? Well, because it's been quite clear that the UAE's attitude you know, towards having them is equivocal. I mean, they're quite keen to attract um, international money. Uh, these people still run big businesses. They're still influential. Their reputation, of course, uh, is highly questionable. But it's an obvious venue for them. And, um, you know, they've been encouraged to go there. So if they can't stick around in Europe, 
um, <clears throat> what are the alternatives? Uh, the alternatives are possibly Turkey. Which becomes really important. We can see that uh, with what's happening with President Putin and President Erdogan in Turkey uh, dealing together about the Ukrainian war. So Turkey is also quite important in the Russian aspect and diplomacy, correct? Absolutely. And I mean, it's clear what Erdogan is trying to do. He's trying to position himself as a potential intermediary so that if at any point there are going to be peace talks between Ukraine and Russia, probably Turkey would be the obvious player to, you know, separate but communicate between the two sides. So, and, and I mean, there's a huge Russian community uh, in coastal Turkey. They've been there for years. They're well established. I, I think the other, you know, issue with a lot of the uh, oligarch families is they want to make very sure that their children and not in Russia, so that if there is a general call-up to the military and we get beyond the special military operation, you know, their children are out of reach of the Russian state. Um, I mean, there's no question about that <coughs> at the moment. So, you know, the, the, the world to, has closed down partially for these Russian families, but on the other hand, there are still sufficient places to go which have a culture which accommodates them, luxury hotels, all the rest, and, um, you know, is prepared to welcome them and to an extent their money. And also fiscal facilities for them to launder their money, correct? I mean, do you think Dubai is an interesting place for that? Or again, uh, the EU, the United Emirates? Yes, I think Dubai perhaps has more flexibility than I mean, the UAE is uh, maybe a bit more regulated, but I think all of those will offer facilities to these Russians. So it's an obvious place. And look, it's, they've always been a sort of crossroads culturally, and they've always been less uh, censorious, let's say, on political issues because of their own, you know, you're talking about autocracies, you're not talking about democracies. And um, it's a very clear-cut situation and and, uh, and the, the, these Russians are running out of choice of places to go and the ones that are left are pretty clear-cut. How in your opinion they're dealing with Putin far away because they're not in Moscow anymore do you think uh, President Putin is uh, using them when they're overseas? Well I think it depends on the relationships that they have with Putin and the Siloviki. But I think most of the influential ones have straight links into the regime. They will have their means of communication. They will have their interlocutors. I'm quite sure that uh, the Russians will use their intelligence and security organizations to facilitate those oligarchs that they see as favorably disposed towards Putin and not a problem for the Russian state. But there will be those that, you know, are deceiving us that they're in opposition to Putin, but aren't in reality that at all. I mean, I, I, you know, it's a very nuanced situation. Can they have an influence on him at this point? I mean, do you think uh, President Putin is talking uh, with some oligarchs about the war in Ukraine and also 
for instance, the energy restriction, because we can really see in Europe that at this moment the debate is about uh, the gas and the electricity restriction, which could happen in a few weeks here. I mean, I think Putin's policy on Ukraine is Putin's policy on Ukraine. That is clearly driven by Putin and a very small group around him. I think the oligarchs are expected to fit in and support him. If they oppose him, then they're in a difficult situation. When you get on to the issue of Russian energy, yeah, I mean, it, you know, those that are energy oligarchs, it, it affects fundamentally. And, you know, they will be as keen as Putin is to find alternative markets um, if Putin is going to embargo the West, let's say. Uh, and those alternative markets are going to lie probably in Asia, China, obviously. Um, and they'll want to come to accommodation with individual countries. And some oligarchs will play a role in that. Uh, Luis, you're an oligarch specialist. Do you think, again, uh, those uh, rich oligarchs uh, could have an influence on President Putin? In general, the oligarchs at the moment have very little influence on Putin. He is living in a very close circle with his close advisors and he has, as you'd say in French, an idée fixe, and he's got... He I mean, I'm glad to see that you and Sir Richard are speaking French. So for the listeners, idée fixe means fixed idea. So go ahead. Thank you so much again for that. He's absolutely determined to dominate Ukraine, whether it makes economic sense, whether it makes long-term political sense for Russia and the West, and, and with NATO, that's not his concern. So you're saying that the oligarchs at this moment do not have any influence on him? I would say that at this moment, most of the oligarchs have absolutely minimal influence on Putin. But he has to decide what he is going to be doing about energy issues because that has enormous implications for the Russian economy because the Russian economy is totally dependent on oil and gas exports. That we know that. But just to come back to the oligarchs, Louise, uh, you heard about Roman Abramovich, correct? I don't know Roman Abramovich. I certainly follow his life, his path, his trajectory. But he's not the only oligarch in the oil and gas sector. So who is the most important oligarch at this moment for you who could have an influence on Putin? I don't think there are many oligarchs who are having an influence on Putin. I think that if you're thinking about um, Rosneft, if you're thinking about the Russian oil companies, uh, there are people who, are, who have dual roles in Russia. They are running part of the economy, and then they are major investors and holders in the Russian oil and gas sector. And that's, you know, who we need to be focusing on, because there's not this separation in, in Russia that you're thinking about elsewhere, that someone is an oligarch and then, then someone's in the government. There are oligarchs who are in the government, and then there are oligarchs who have sectors of the government that were privatized to them that are very much, as Sir Richard talked about, dependent on Putin to, to maintain their businesses. So that's a kind of relation between, again, Putin and the oligarchs. Even if they don't have an influence on him, it's an interdependence relationship, correct? Yes, but it's also that some of the people 
running the Russian state, who are in lead positions in Russian government, are also oligarchs at the same time. And it's not just the oligarchs that you're thinking of, of Abramovich or Deripaska, who are powerful and international. They're also within the state apparatus. There's an idea in France, and I'm curious uh, to ask you both this question, that one day, due to the fact that maybe Putin is sick, one oligarch can replace him. Do you agree with this idea? I think that the likelihood of who would replace Putin if he becomes ill is not an oligarch, but someone who's a member of the Tsiloviki, which is the power structures of Russia, um, someone like Patrushev, somebody who is in Putin's inner circle at the moment. Whether that person would survive in power a long time, I don't know, but that's what I see as the next scenario. So, Richard, do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with Louise, absolutely. It'll definitely be initially one of the Tsiloviki, and I mean, I would go as far as to say I would almost for certain it would be Patrushev at the moment. Whether that figure will survive politically in the longer term is entirely another question, because then, you know, if you get back to a Russian election and they do have elections in Russia, then you could see money and wealth um, and influence playing a different role in what one would describe as the Russian political system. But initial successor, definitely a Siloviki, no question. Louise, do you think the oligarchs have been weakened by the war in Ukraine or outside the, the Russian system that's still extremely powerful in terms of economic influence? That's what I'm trying to understand also. So if you're asking have they been weakened by Ukraine, I mean, yes, some of their net worth has declined dramatically, but also because this decision to go and wage war on Ukraine was made by Putin himself. It is not a decision in which the oligarchs took part. And they were, you know, at the initial part of the war or before the war, Putin laid out his, his position and they had to go along with it. And there has been little opposition. So what, what it's not as if it's not as if they've been weakened. They were not in a strong situation except financially before the invasion. Do you think financially at this moment the money went to Dubai, went to uh, the United Emirates with them? Do you think they have import, that they're important there? I mean, are, they've m managed to move their money, but also to have the influence that they want and to live the kind of lives they want to live they need access to their wealth in Western Europe and to Western Europe and to the United States. And that's been made more difficult for them. What do you mean by the United States? Do they have do some oligarchs are in the United States at this moment? They're not in the United States and their property, um, their yachts are not in the United States, but some of them own very, very valuable properties in the United States, in Florida, in New York and they don't have access to them. There are lists of them. So the sanctions have been efficient against them or no, in your opinion, both of you? Well, I think sanctions have worked <clears throat> to the extent of restricting the lifestyles of you know, the, uh, those who are 
close to Putin, those who've been sanctioned. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, whether the sanctions, you know, have worked in terms of restraining Russia's invasion uh, uh, in Ukraine is a completely different issue. And we can see clearly that because of the high price of energy, um, you know, the Russian state is still making an awful lot of money to pay for the war in Ukraine. So, you know, there's a definite dichotomy there of analysis when you look at what's happened. But the, uh, the financial systems uh, in the States and in the UK have made life very difficult for individual oligarchs, if not for the Russian state. Do you agree? They've shortened some of their ability to spend money, but there are many properties in the United States that are very valuable that have not been frozen, that belong to Russian oligarchs and have not been frozen by our government. So for instance, in Florida? Which... In Florida, in other cities in the United States, in ski resorts, they've been identified and have not been frozen. Which cities and who are we talking about? We're talking about, you know, major oligarchs, and we're talking about not just cities, we're talking about areas of ski resorts, urban areas, um, and this property hasn't been frozen. We've not been as efficient at finding this property as we should be and not as efficient at freezing it and, and confiscating it. That's an entirely different situation. What do you recommend to the government to do about that? I think that they need to have much more cooperation with civil society that is locating these properties and helping them do the kind of analytical work that they haven't done previously on, on the location and the assets of oligarchs. And so, Richard, what's your recommendation? Well, I think I very much agree with what Louise is saying. And I mean, there's an important point that's come up here, which is legally confiscation is difficult. Um, I, I mean, for example, this business with these super yachts that have been impounded and therefore become temporarily the possessions of the governments that impound them, there's a huge problem, um, which actually is infecting the insurance companies. I happen to be chairman of an insurance writing, underwriting syndicate at Lloyd's. And, you know, what on earth do you do with, a, with one of these boats if you're the insurer? Um, if they're impounded, these things deteriorate at a massive speed um, and they become pretty much valueless in a rather short period of time. And the insurance companies do not want to face that situation and then have to pay the owners for the value of the... Anyway, I, I'm, just, I'm just describing to you the complexity of one situation when you get into this issue. But, you know, for, I think for, for ordinary people looking at this, you know, they imagine that the government can just go around and confiscate everything. Of course, that's not legally possible in the United States, in the UK, and I'm sure it's not a possible in France either. Just to finish, and that's, uh, we're going to wrap up here very quickly, but I would like to speak a little bit about very briefly to both of you, and I'm going to begin with Louise, by the Ukrainian situation. According to your research, what's the Zelensky relation with the rich Ukrainians? I mean, one of the problems that um, overshadowed Zelensky before the Russian invasion was his very close relationship with Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky owned the, the TV channel where he had his wonderful show called Servant of the 
servant to the people. But Karl Lemoyski is also an oligarch, an incredibly corrupt oligarch, and he laundered huge amounts of money into Cleveland, into cities in the United States, and he's been subject to massive investigations for his corruption and money laundering into the U.S. So this overshadows Kolomoisky, but now he is a, you know, defending his country, but it has been a problem in the anti-corruption efforts that preceded, um, preceded the war, and the presence of so much corruption will be a major concern when Ukraine starts to rebuild after this war. Do you think the money sent by the United States and Europe to Ukraine can go in the wrong way? I mean, do you think the corruption is so huge in Ukraine that the money is not going to go to where it should go? I'm saying at, at the moment, I don't think that there is massive corruption in the military assistance, but I believe very there is illicit trade going on that we're analyzing at the moment at my research center on diversion of humanitarian aid. That is a serious problem. And what will happen when there is reconstruction money uh, and how much of that will be diverted, corrupted, um, is a very significant concern for the future. That's fascinating. And again, very briefly, and so Richard, I'm going to come back to you in one minute, but very briefly, Louise, in your research, what did you find so far about the diversion of money, Western money, going officially to the humanitarian help, and apparently which is not going there? No, this is not a question of money being diverted. It's a question of the aid, you know, food aid. So tangible items that are being diverted from their intended targets to, you know, for personal profit. And I'm just, we're just in the midst of starting this, but it's a problem that has been identified in the border areas. Do you think it can happen to the weapons? I think that there is so much concern about the weapons and they're so visible that I, I'm not sure that the, that the weapons can be as diverted as easily as the humanitarian supplies. But the humanitarian supplies go to, for instance, very rich Ukrainians at this moment, according to your research? That I can't say. There is some diversion going to organized crime groups that are operating in border territories. Ukrainian organized crime groups, correct? I don't know if it's just Ukrainian groups. There have been long-standing groups operating along the border of Ukraine with, um, with the eastern parts of the um, EU, and those groups have not disappeared. But this is what I'm working on now. I can't tell you the, all the details. Give me a few months. No, but I hope we will, uh, you will be able to do another podcast with us when you will have finished your, your research, because this is absolutely fascinating. So, Richard, did you know about that? Well, I wouldn't say I know about it. I'm suspicious. Look, I think with Ukraine, our hearts are with the Ukrainians. You know, we have this amazing sort of emotional commitment to them. But you have to bear in mind, if you go back, you know, before the Russian invasion, if you go back through Ukrainian politics over the last 10 years, <clears throat> the, the country's been through successive 
crises and corruption uh, within Ukraine has been a major problem. This hasn't necessarily gone away. Um, you know, it's been sublimated because of the military conflict. And I think I agree with what Louise is saying. I think it's unlikely at this point in time that the Russian, uh, sorry, that the Ukrainian military, that the, the supply of arms is subject to corruption and diversion. I think in other areas, we have to worry because, you know, Ukrainian major criminality has been a problem in the area before the conflict started. And it's not going to go away just like that. Perfect. And just to finish, that will be my last question. Louise answered Richard. How long do you think this conflict is going to go on? I, I don't see a ready resolution of this conflict. And whether it continues at this massive scale, I'm not sure, but it's not going away. We did Since 2014, when the invasion first occurred in Crimea and and eastern Ukraine, there has been guerrilla warfare for the last eight years. So this is not ending soon, unfortunately. This is a war that started in 2014. We've got to remember that. And there's currently no end in sight. If you ask me to estimate, you know, before the conflict, as it were, begins to reduce, I would say another year to 18 months at least. Thank you so much. And on this note, which is not an optimistic note, we're going to leave you there. Uh, Louise, thank you so much. We really would like to see your report and read your report. And of course, speak about your report, which seems absolutely fascinating. And Sir Richard, as always, we really appreciate your time on this podcast and we hope you enjoyed this discussion about the oligarchs, the war in Ukraine, and we hope you will join us soon for another podcast dealing with international foreign affairs and uh, diplomacy. Thank you so much, both of you. It was a pleasure to be with you. À la prochaine, Laura. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> Louise, thank you so much. Merci thank beaucoup. you. Au revoir. Merci Au revoir. à tous deux. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>